At the age of 18, Kentaro Miura was fired for being too good of an artist. Miura had been an assistant to George Murakawa, author of the popular boxing manga Hajime no Ippo. Miura had his fair share of experience already. He published his first manga in a school publication when he was 10, which ended up running for 40 volumes. He quickly started up a second manga and began learning more complex and professional methods. He entered an art curriculum in his high school and just kept drawing more and more. By the time he had started working for Murakawa, he was already a master of his craft and thus was quickly fired, Murakawa explaining that there was nothing left that he could teach him. At the time, Miura had already begun drafting up sketches of a dark warrior with a gigantic sword. Said sketch was the root for what would a decade later become Berserk, the dark fantasy manga that would change the way we see dark fantasy, and Gintaro Miura's magnum opus. Beginning in 1989 and running for over 40 volumes, Berserk tells the story of Guts, a dark-haired man with a large slab of iron called a sword as he roams through the world and hunts down demons. Over time, the series became a hit, establishing a strong, passionate fanbase and leaving its mark on creatives everywhere. Guts and his sword, the Dragon Slayer, became recognizable icons, creating an aesthetic that would be imitated throughout pop culture from this point forward. The impact of Berserk cannot be understated. From Dark Souls to Attack on Titan to Final Fantasy to Devil May Cry, there is no Nier without Berserk. There is no Bloodborne without Berserk. There is no Cloud Strife without Berserk. And these are just the ones who admit that they were influenced by it. The list probably goes on way longer. So with a series this widely acclaimed and this popular and this long-running, you might be curious, where exactly do I begin? How do I get into Berserk? And the answer to that is simple. Read the manga. Just read the manga. It's available digitally for cheap, but if you like physical collections, and then you can buy either the individual volumes for print or the very nice omnibus editions Dark Horse publishes, which are big and hardcover and have three volumes in one binding and come with a nice bookmark ribbon. Start at volume one and just go from there. Alright, glad I could help. So I'd like to thank these patrons for today's video. Oh, what's that? Ah, uh, yeah, you're, you're right. That's that's not enough. Because while that is a way to get into Berserk, it's not the only way, is it? Because there's also all these anime and movies, and I, I, I don't know which to go with, if I should go with them at all, and what even is Berserk? Like, what is it about? Why should I care? Would I even like it? And that's an important question because, you know, on the surface, Berserk seems like it would be this edgy, senseless, over-the-top action gore fest, the type that thrives solely on exploitation and shock value. I'd understand why someone would have that be their first impression of the series. I mean, the official English manga descriptions don't really help things. Not for the squeamish or the easily offended. Berserk asks for no quarter and offers none. Brutal, crude, and darkly funny. Berserk is not exactly the book for the theater crowd, unless the theater features pit fights. If you're looking for graphic fiction to take home to grandma, this ain't it, unless granny smokes cigars and rides a Harley. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's, that's not a good way to sell it, especially because it's not representative of Berserk as a whole. Berserk is a series I hold very dear to my heart. From the first time I began reading the manga when I was 11 to now, I always found myself very attached to this world and these characters and these themes. I, I tend to go through the series once a year in at least one format. I have a shelf dedicated to nothing but Berserk. I even have a Brand of Sacrifice tattoo that I got a few years ago. This is a series that I care a lot about. So I want to do what I can to make this as easy to understand as possible. I want to explore Berserk, though not so much in its original manga format, mainly because that speaks for itself. You can just go read it and experience it from beginning to now. Rather, I want to talk about its adaptations and what they all mean. I mean, it's easier to point to a show that's not that long and recommend it than it is to tell someone to read 40 volumes of manga. And so I want to explore which adaptations are worth it and which are not, ranging from one of my favorite anime to all time to one of my biggest media disappointments ever. And hopefully as we go through this, I can convey to you exactly why Berserk is so damn special. 
Okay, but like before we actually get into that, there is some context that you need. The Berserk manga starts off with the Black Swordsman arc. It's a relatively short and simple arc spanning about three collected volumes and not much in the way of plot. We're introduced to our main lead, Guts, a one-armed and one-eyed man with a mysterious brand on his neck and a giant sword, as he takes on the title of Black Swordsman, going around and killing various demonic beings called apostles. Accompanying him is Puck, a small elf he meets in the first chapter who is capable of healing Guts' wounds and is very cheerful and optimistic, much to Guts' chagrin. And that's basically it. The arc is essentially these Monster of the Week stories of Guts running into some demonic entity and then finding a way to kill it, while he gets into arguments with Puck about their differing philosophies and attitudes regarding the world around them. The first two chapters are self-contained encounters, but chapter three and beyond revolve around a sub-arc entitled Guardians of Desire, in which Guts and Puck enter this town ruled by a man named the Count, who has become an apostle and has dedicated his life to killing heretics. The Black Swordsman arc is... Like, okay, I wouldn't say it's bad. It's good. Well, it's fine. But it's definitely spotty. And it definitely lacks a lot of the finesse that later parts of Berserk would have. I think the main flaw of it is that, on the surface, it can feel a lot like edgelord shit. A big reason for this is just in the way Guts is written. He is... well, he's an asshole. A huge asshole. And I believe Miura went into this project with the mindset of trying to create a manga with the most unlikable protagonist he could, and oh, he succeeded. He definitely succeeded. Guts spends almost the entirety of the Black Swordsman arc being a prick to others. He's constantly putting down everyone around him, not showing any real empathy for anyone else, constantly spouting this doomer, pessimistic rhetoric. Like, for example, there's a moment in the Guardians of Desire arc where he just kicks this elderly, disfigured, disabled man and then says he looks like a monster, all because the man put his hand on Guts' shoulder, and that's just one small moment out of many like it. And while Guts will get more depth later on, his attitude in the spirit of time will get explored and elaborated, some of this stuff just still doesn't feel right. Like, like the first page of Berserk is Guts having sex with a demon so that he can lure it in for a kill, and well, that just doesn't fit the characterization we get later, to the point where some may argue whether or not the first page of the series is even canon. Guts's worldview and his overwhelming belief that everything is terrible colors most of the Black Swordsman arc. It would be wrong to call it the most depressing arc that Berserk has done, but it's definitely the one that feels the least optimistic. It presents the world as a world where no one is safe, a world full of sex and violence and horrors beyond our understanding. And more than that, it presents the idea that these horrors are inevitable, that life is just like this and you can fight back, but there's a good chance you just suffer and die. And it can really, really, really start to feel like edgelord shit. Though weirdly, I'd say that's also one of the reasons why I'd recommend reading the Black Swordsman arc. Don't get me wrong, it's flawed and it's my least favorite arc of the series, and while I wouldn't recommend skipping it, I wouldn't blame anyone who can't vibe with it. But at the same time, what it does really well is set the scene for the manga as a whole. The Black Swordsman arc is important to understanding the overall story of Berserk, not necessarily because of any plot-related things that happen in it, such as Guts meeting Puck or the introduction of the Baylet or anything like that. No, it's important because it sets up the atmosphere and the characterization that Berserk is going to explore. Despite how uncharacteristically harsh the arc may seem relative to the others, despite how overwhelming unlikable guts is in this section, it's important that you see this and hate it. You're supposed to hate it. You're supposed to be upset. The arc doesn't glorify guts. Not at all. If it was, it would have left out Puck. Puck is the moral compass and, dare I say, the thing that makes the arc work. He exists to call guts out whenever he gets too harsh. He provides comedic relief to offset the darker moments, and even though this spot of the manga seems unfocused, you can already tell that Miura has ideas for where the story is going because he straight up has Puck just say the thesis statement right at the beginning of volume two, and the thesis statement isn't killing demons is cool and fun. And you can also see Miura get a handle on Berserk by how the arc ends. Without going too much into spoilers, reading the Black Swordsman arc is like seeing an author gradually gain more and more of an understanding of what he has to work with. This can be seen just in how the Count is written versus the main villain in chapter one, the Snake Baron. The Count is isn't sympathetic per se, 
but he's understandable. He has a backstory, and you can understand how this man, in the position he was in, would end up here, and you can see a more morally mixed side of him, really analyzing what it means to be a demon and to give up your humanity. By the end of it, you get the proper introduction of what will be the series' big bad, the god hand, but more importantly, you see an unexpected sight. Guts. Crying. Yeah, Guts has one of his big fuck you, the world sucks, be better speeches, and he turns around and starts crying. It's a small moment, and with the way the panel is drawn, a bit funny, but it's also very powerful. It's allowing this hyper-muscle angry boy to just cry out. It's the first time we've seen Guts show an actual human emotion, and it's from here that the story is going to really start to ask several questions, namely how did the world get like this, and how did Guts get like this? And this leads us straight away into an extended flashback. And by extended, I mean around 10 volumes long. Welcome to the Golden Age arc, an arc focused entirely around chronicling Guts' backstory, from the moment he was born to moments leading up to Guts becoming the Black Swordsman. Gone is the dark fantasy setting replaced by a more low-key medieval style. Gone are the hardcore demon fights replaced with elaborate army sieges and many, many, many scenes of dudes in armor on horseback. Gone is Guts the Edgelord replaced with Guts the babyface angsty teen. It can be a lot to get used to on your first time reading, not just because of how different the content is, but because of the instantaneous leap in quality that happens. Yeah, the difference between the Black Swordsman arc and the Golden Age arc is astronomical. Basically, everything is better. The characterization, the art, the handling of themes, it is such a night and day difference, and the fact that it happens so suddenly is mind-blowing. And then the series just kept going for five arcs total and about 40 more volumes, just being consistently great and feeling expertly crafted and put together. The start of the Golden Age arc and Berserk's switch to Young Animal Magazine caused a spike in popularity for the series, turning Berserk from a cult property to a hit, and the increased attention would lead to the creation of Berserk's first animated adaptation in 1997. In November 1997, less than a year after the Golden Age arc ended in the manga, a 25-episode animated adaptation of Berserk aired on Nippon Television in Japan. The series was titled The Sword Wind Romance, Berserk in Japan, but localized here as simply Berserk. For the sake of convenience, let's just call it Berserk 97. The anime was directed by Naohiro Takahashi and animated by OLM. OLM was a great choice for Berserk, as months beforehand they had started adapting another popular dark fantasy series, Pokemon. Berserk 97 is primarily an adaptation of the Golden Age, skipping over all but the first chapter of the Black Swordsman arc. In order to condense the story down to 25 episodes and also work with an apparent shoestring budget, large omissions were made from the manga to the anime, mainly removing a lot of the demonic and supernatural elements and scaling back some of these subplots. Large epic fight scenes from the manga are mostly replaced with paintings and workarounds in order to do their best. Plot points and scenes that would be too risque to show on network television are just gone, like just not there anymore. So here we have an adaptation made with generally poor animation that leaves out several important characters and subplots, skips entire arcs, and sanitizes some of the more explicit elements. It is my favorite anime of all time. Like, I usually don't like to give such definitive statements like that, but it just feels right. Berserk 97 is a masterpiece through and through. It's the rare show that I find myself rewatching from beginning to end every year since I was 12, at least once a year, and usually in one sitting. And if you know me for any considerable amount of time, then I've probably gotten you to watch this show at some point, whether you're my childhood best friend, or my partner, or my parents. Nothing else I found resonates with me like this. But okay, okay. I can't just say something like that, I have to back it up. And to do that, I should probably explain why Berserk 97 is about, and in turn, why the Golden Age arc is so good. The story focuses on guts, yes, but I think in the case of 97, it feels more accurate to say that it's the tale of three different people. We have Guts, our previously established baby-faced giant swordsman, who at this point in the story is an aimless mercenary. Through his journeys, he meets Griffith, a charismatic man with dreams of being king, and the type of character where simply saying his name here is bound to start causing debates in the comments section. Griffith is the leader of the mercenary group known as the Band of the the Hawk, or Falcon in the original Japanese version. One homoerotic sword fight later, and Guts is forced to swear loyalty to Griffith and join the Hawks. In the middle of 
the two is Casca, our third protagonist, the sole woman of the Hawks who has devoted her life to helping Griffith achieve his dreams. We follow Guts, Griffith, Casca, and the rest of the Hawks as they help fight a 100-year war that has been ravaging the land while gaining more and more political power and getting more involved with the upper reaches of society. And at first, that's what you think the show is, just these medieval siege fights and politics and war scenes, and it's not not that. The battles can be interesting, and I do find the political chess playing to be really fun to watch unfold. But as it goes on, you begin to notice more and more what the show is actually going for. This isn't just about a fantasy battle. The battles don't even matter, really. What you're watching is a show about three abused people trying to figure out ways to process and deal with their trauma, fighting to figure out their purpose in the world and what it all represents. For every long battle scene of blood and gore and hardcore action, there's a moment of the characters just sitting there and talking about their emotions and their feelings and their goals and their past. But there's also an underlying sadness to the entire thing. We know that this is going to end badly. We know that at some point that Guts is going to lose his arm and eye. We know that at some point he's going to go off on his own. We know that this bright-eyed young soldier will turn into the ruthless black swordsman. And that knowledge will carry with you through the Golden Age, always in the back of your mind, wondering how and why things are going to reach the tragic inevitability. This is also when Berserk really, really starts to go all in on its themes. The Golden Age arc asks a lot of questions. Questions about fate and dreams and human will and violence. In a world where everything is going down the path of causality, how much control over our actions do we have? What does it mean to have your own ambitions? Is living in the shadow of someone else an acceptable way to live, or do you need to follow your own path? What does death mean in the context of war? How important is your dream? Does it outweigh everyone else in your life? Is it our personal drive or our emotional connections that make us human? But these are all reasons why the Golden Age arc is good in general. Like, all that I just said could apply to the manga version of the story as well. So what is it about the way the 97 anime portrays it that makes it stand out? Why is this adaptation worth watching compared to just reading the manga? Well, first we have to ask ourselves what is the most important component of adaptation. On the surface, the point of an adaptation is to take the content of a work and execute it in a new medium or format. But I think what people can stumble on when it comes to thinking about these things is that adaptations, or good ones at least, are less like hitting copy and paste on a keyboard and more like translating a language. It's about finding out the meaning of that original text and trying to find a way to convey that via the tools of what the new format is. What separates a good adaptation from a bad adaptation is less literal one-to-one -one textual conversion and more of a question of subtextual spirit. In a lot of respects, the quality of an adaptation is less dependent on the original material as it is on the direction. So we have to face a really harsh truth. Berserk 97 could never be a true adaptation of the manga. It just wouldn't be possible. Not with this number of episodes and not with this budget. Even at this point when only 14 volumes of the manga were out, there would be way too much story to condense down to 25 episodes. And as far as budget is concerned, well, look at these pages. Look at them. There's no way you can just easily do this in an animated medium. And the sooner you accept that fact, the sooner you can start asking yourself what your plan is to work around it. And the answer to that is simple. You make the best of what you can. Place priority time and money on the action scenes that need it the most. Find spots where instead of animating an intense action beat, you can just make a watercolor painting and then slide it back and forth three times, like this. Effective. Gets the job done. But on its own, it might not be enough. Berserk 97 was never going to be a Dragon Ball Z. It would never be known for its action. It doesn't have the budget to create epic fights you can make AMVs to or anything like that. So it doesn't even try. It trades that side of things for another, characterization. 97 cuts out a lot of quote-quote important fights later on in the series, ones that require a lot of complicated animations and character designs, and instead decides to focus that time towards the beginning as we spend more time with the Band of the Hawk and with our characters. To someone familiar with the manga, these parts can feel like filler. After all, we get a few episodes almost entirely focused on different Hawk raids, with an increased emphasis on minor villainy Don Corbelwitz, General the Blue Whale Knights, and these don't give us a lot of forward plot progression. 
But, you know, it's it's not always about plot. It's about using these moments to enhance our understanding of the series and the characters, whether that's giving more time for Guts to develop as a person as we explore his early days in the Hawks, getting to see Griffith's leadership expertise firsthand, or just allowing the ensemble cast to get a little more time in the spotlight. And it's these character moments that really make 97 shine. The Golden Age was the start of Berserk really embracing that balance between horror and beauty, pain and relief, and 97 revels in that balance, and understands that things like the Battle of Doldry are only as important as the bonfire of dreams scene between Guts and Casca. Every Hawk siege scene requires a moment of Guts and the rest of his comrades sitting around the bonfire. For every Guts and Griffith fighting Zod, you need a Guts and Griffith naked bath fight, which in general is just always a good idea. These character scenes help explore the themes of the Golden Age, which Berserk 97 shows full awareness of and dives right into. In case you were curious about what type of show you were dealing with, every episode begins with this monologue, and every episode previews some bullshit like this. When is there a time where one can live his dream without inflicting a wound on someone else's heart? In this world, is having affection towards someone an avoidable sin? Man realizes his capacity for joy through his experiences of love and his capacity for ruin. Could it be even ruin holds an irresistible fascination for man? And I really do need to give special shout out to the dub. It's phenomenal, and the English voice actors do an astounding job bringing these characters to life. Yes, it is an anime dub made in the early 2000s, so there's definitely some stilted deliveries here and there. But overall, the dub actors managed to bridge that gap between something that feels like a sound booth character voice and an actual living person. None of the cast sounds like they're playing up a role in the same way you might hear in other anime. Unless you want to count General Adon Korbowitz of the Blue Whale Knights, who is voiced by Mike Pollock, aka Dr. Eggman, but that's, you know, sort of his thing. Oh, and the music. I couldn't get through this without talking about the music. I'm a big fan of media where the score seems like it's only composed of three songs, but they're used so well and do such a good job at establishing a unique tone that you become really attached to every melody, and Berserk 97's score falls under that specific qualifier. It's composed by Susumu Hirasawa, who will essentially become Berserk's music dad after this, having done at least one song for every piece of Berserk media from this point on. What really stands out about it is just how different it is. Generally, fantasy scores have a very specific sound. No matter the tone of the original work, you tend to think of grand, sweeping orchestration, sounds meant to convey a sense of scope and epicness. But 97 score isn't like that. It feels solitary, out of this world. The instruments used are eclectic, ranging from synthesizers to violins to bagpipes. Where a choir and other scores would be used to convey something divine, whenever a chorus breaks out in Berserk 97 score, the sound feels like an emotional release. This isn't music that you put your dark fantasy to. This is something you find in a guided hypnosis video on YouTube. And I mean that in the best way. And the opening and ending themes are... Look, everyone loves to make fun of them, and for good reason. They're easy to make fun of. They sound out of place. They have these nonsensical English lyrics. The opening, Tell Me Why by the Pen Pals, is this horribly out-of-tune punk song. On paper, it's the poorest choice for an opening song you could give something like that. But I'll be damned if it's uncharming. And as you watch more and more, it feels more fitting. It blends in effortlessly with the atmosphere of the rest of the show, becoming such an integral part of the experience that I can't imagine Berserk with any other opening but that. And the same thing goes for the ending song, Waiting So Long by Silverfins. On your first listen, it might be goofy or maybe even outright boring, but as the series goes on, you become more and more accustomed to it until you get to the final episode, where the song suddenly gains a sense of haunting melancholy to it that will characterize every listen of it from that point forward. And even the animation is appealing. I know I was calling it bad earlier, but that's mainly because it's really easy to see the cut corners. But the stuff that's here is gorgeous. So much detail is put into the background work, so much bringing the characters to life. The entire thing has the vibe and charm that you can only really get out of 90s anime. The colors and style highlighting so much of the vibe of the original manga. It would be unfair of me to bring up all this praise towards the series without bringing up some of its more divisive elements. One of the most notable things about 97 is how it changes and modifies and omits parts of the manga. Some of this is fine, honestly. Like, 
there are some purists out there who will be mad that things like, I don't know, the Queen of Midland's motivation and backstory aren't fully portrayed in the anime. Personally, I'm more in the whatever zone on that. But then there's things like the gutting of the Black Swordsman arc, essentially adapting only the first chapter of it as the first episode and then going straight into the Golden Age. For manga fans, it can be frustrating to see so much of that arc skipped over. For people watching the anime first, it can mean that the first episode feels out of place compared to the rest of the series, as it's so different and it can be hard to understand exactly why it's there. I've definitely seen a few discussions that say to skip episode one entirely and start on episode two. Personally, I don't think that's the way to go. I mean, that first episode without the rest of the arc to follow it up does stick out, yes, and I would advise someone getting into Berserk for the first time to watch the first two or three episodes rather than just base their opinion off the first one because it doesn't really match what the remaining 24 are going for, but it's still important to watch to get that framing device, to get you to start asking these questions, to get you to wonder exactly what's going on here. And honestly, for what the show is focusing on, I think having this part cut down to just one episode works perfectly fine. Like, I'd love to have stuff with the count animated, but I don't need to see it. Not in this show, at least. But perhaps more notably is the erasure of Puck from the Black Swordsman arc. And that's not all, but other characters, generally the supernatural ones, get adapted out entirely. Some of this is, in my opinion, a definitive good thing, because it means cutting out a character like Wild, a large sociopathic demon who is by far, without a doubt, the worst character in Berserk and a definite misfire in the manga. But it also means erasures of fan-favorite characters like Skull Knight. It's hard to figure out exactly what the motivation was here. My first instinct is to say that it was a practical one. They had 25 episodes to tell a story, so they went ahead and focused on what elements were important to telling this story story. Characters like Puck and Skull Daddy are cool and great and I love them, but if Berserk 97 is trying to be viewed as its own thing, then introducing them could take more time and money than it would really be worth. There's also the possibility that this is because they don't know exactly what elements of Berserk are going to be important in the long run. Like, Skull Knight becomes one of the more prominent recurring characters from this point forward, but at this point he's just a nameless skeleton man on a horse. Like, take a human character like Salat, who will become more important in the manga. If you didn't have that knowledge that he was going to come back, then Salat is just a man who guts fights in a tournament who can be replaced by a simpler, easier-to-show character. Remember, budget is $5 here. There's also the more artistic possibility, that this was all a deliberate choice in order to give a very deliberate pacing when it comes to the supernatural elements of the story. The Golden Age arc overall isn't very demon-heavy, but it also doesn't hide the fact that supernatural stuff is going on. This makes sense in the manga, because by the time you get here, you would have read three volumes of dark fantasy demon slaying. But in an anime where you've already decided you're not going to do the entirety of the Black Swordsman arc, you can make things a bit more nebulous. Berserk 97 doesn't erase all of the supernatural elements of the arc, that would be impossible, but by trimming down a lot of that stuff, it makes the moments where they do appear stand out. You'll go five or seven episodes entirely about medieval politics before you end up hearing someone mention something about fairies or get reminded about the mystical and mysterious bailet that has this ancient prophecy behind it. And it means that once you get to the ending, once everything starts to hit the fan and shit goes weird, it really, really stands out and feels like a punch in the stomach. And I think that's why I prefer the anime version of the Golden Age. Like, if I were to recommend someone get into Berserk, this is 100% the place I would tell them to start. Not to say that the manga version of the Golden Age is bad, no, it's still great, minus the part where Wild exists. But there's something about the way that the anime presents itself that's just so alluring. It manages to capture all of the emotions of this arc, places emphasis on the moments of conflict that it needs to, and perfectly paces itself so that you're always feeling on the edge of your seat while watching, desperate to see what's going to happen next. It would be off-putting for me to call Berserk 97 a perfect series. I don't know if I fully believe that. There are some parts of it that I don't like that much or wish were done better. But goddammit, it's the closest thing to perfect I think I'm ever going to find in an anime like this. And certainly, in my opinion, the best adaptation of anything I've ever seen. It understands what an adaptation should do, emphasizing the strengths of the source material while also identifying the weaknesses and finding ways to make them work. It takes what made an already exceptional arc in the source material and injects it with such strong direction and atmosphere that it transcends what the manga could realistically do creating a work that, in my opinion at least, deserves respect as its own work of art just as much as the original does. It is damn good. There are three things we need to talk about, though. 
three very, very important things that you need to know before going into Berserk 97. First off is more of a general warning, but now is as good of a time as I need to say it. Berserk is infamous for its usage of sexual assault. It's been a thing that can overshadow the way people view the work itself, an elephant in the room that can make it hard to casually recommend the series to people. And while I do think that Berserk handles the subject well most of the time, it still is brutal to see and a prominent aspect of the series, especially in the manga. I can understand why some people out there wouldn't be able to engage with something like this. And before people get mad me for even bringing this up as an issue, Mira himself said in a 2019 interview that he regrets how much sexual assault was in Berserk in its early years, so this isn't a case of Madwoman Online or anything, this is the author himself admitting that this was a problem. I do think that Berserk 97 and Berserk as a whole is a piece of art worth experiencing, but I also understand why that could be difficult. If you want to give it a shot but are nervous about this aspect of the story, I'm going to include a link in the description for a Reddit post that states the episode and time codes for each point of sexual assault in Berserk 97 so that you can skip through them, as well as the light description for what happens so that you can keep up with the narrative. Don't read the comments on the post though, they're, they're bad. On a less heavy note, Berserk 97 can be a bit hard to track down. Technically. If you're in North America, finding a home copy of it is going to be tricky. The home release was originally handled by Media Blasters, who lost the license to the series in 2012 and has since then mostly just been publishing hentai. It's a whole story, but the point is that since then, no other company has made another Region A release of Berserk 97. There have been Region B Blu-rays out there that are pretty well priced and honestly look really great, but I mean, they are Region B, so you have to keep that in mind when going to look for them. At this moment, if you want to watch Berserk 97 in America, well, it's not easy to buy, but it's easy to find. That's all I'll say on that matter. Oh, and one last thing. Let's talk about the ending to Berserk 97, or, well, its lack of one. Berserk 97 is infamous for its ending. To give you an idea without spoiling it, the most frequent comparison I've seen is End of Evangelion. We're talking that level of sheer what the fuckness. It's depressing and it's brutal, and no matter how much I see it, it still gets to me. And it also just stops. Like, without going into spoilers, 97 ends at what's perhaps one of the most shocking moments in the manga. It is the height of tension and anger and emotion. It's a lot to deal with. And rather than give any resolution to any of this, or even just show the downfall, the episode cuts to credits and the ending theme plays. You get a post-credit that just teases that Guts is going to show up as the Black Swordsman, and that's it. A version of Berserk without an ending. This has been a point of contention in the fandom for, oh, almost 20 years now? I said that 97 was divisive for omitting plot elements from the Golden Age arc in the manga, and a big part of that is how it doesn't actually fully adapt to the end of the Golden Age arc. And fans don't just like to debate about the anime ending this way, but discussions will often turn to debates as to why. What caused this to be Berserk 97's ending? Why was this the choice they made? There are various theories for this. One was that this was simply meant to be a cliffhanger ending and OLM planned to make a season two. However, low ratings or low budget or insert production reason here meant that the plan to follow up never happened. A contrasting theory was that this was always meant to be the ending. The 97 anime was made as a way to promote the manga first and foremost, and it did what it needed to do, which is end at a spot that would motivate people to read the manga, even if the motivation was finish showing me the rest of the scene. There's also the alternate pessimistic idea that there was just a lack of interest in doing anything outside of the Golden Age. Interviews suggest that the end of the arc caused a dip in popularity for the series, and Berserk was just now starting to establish itself, once again, as a dark fantasy manga. Perhaps they just didn't feel like there was enough material and enough interest to keep it going. This is something I've been trying to look up on my own for years without much luck, and I tried it again in preparation for this video, and I still haven't found anything conclusive. The fact of the matter is that this is a Japanese television series made almost 25 years ago. If any primary sources out there that 
could confirm or deny something like this, it would be decades old, probably done in a print publication and in Japanese, a language that I do not speak. Personally, if I had to guess what happened here, I would think the answer lies somewhere in between all of this. I think that OLM were fully aware of the fact that they were only ordered for 25 episodes and did their best to tell a story that would work in those 25 episodes, which is why they omitted the plot elements that they did. However, I want to believe that they ended up on Cliffhanger and they hoped that it would get picked up for more, as none of the plot deviations make it that impossible to continue forward. But that doesn't really matter because, well, we didn't get an OLM season 2. The lack of closure in Berserk 97 means that some fans say it's unfinished or that it doesn't have an ending, and you know, yeah, I used those words a few minutes ago, didn't I? But I'm not really sure. I think it just feels that way because there is the knowledge that there's so much more manga after this. If Berserk 97 was its own work, it technically would constitute a full narrative in my opinion. It would be a tragic one, sure, more tragic than what the manga version presents, but it does technically bring an end to everyone's arcs and plays with the themes that 97 was going for regarding humanity and free will. I would still say that it's worth watching, but just watch it with the knowledge that when it's over, you're probably going to either want to read the manga or explore the wiki just to figure out exactly what happens next. Or you can take the third option. For about 10 to 15 years, news of future Berserk media was relatively low-key. I mean, there was a Dreamcast game that got localized over here as Sword of the Berserk, and a PS2 game that came out exclusively in Japan in 2004, but there weren't any other adaptations or media besides that. The manga kept going, sure, still maintaining a sizable enough fan base, especially once the 97 anime got localized in more places, but that was basically it. At least here in the States, it felt like Berserk was squarely in the cult classic category. Most people were only aware of the anime, which meant most people were only familiar with the Golden Age, and the rest of the manga felt, well, neglected and ignored. But then some hope came. In 2009, some images began to surface on the internet of another animated Berserk project. There's not much, only four images, but of particular note are two things, an image of Puck and an image of Casca with her post-Golden Age design, leading to speculation that something was in the works. This would be confirmed a year later when Volume 35 of Berserk released in Japan. On its dust jacket was the announcement of a new anime project. News would be given later and an official Twitter account would be launched for fans keeping up to date, the same Twitter account still used for Berserk today. Five commercials for Volume 35 aired on Japanese television showing new animated material from the Golden Age arc, including moments from the leaked pictures. Puck or post-Golden Age Casca aren't here, but the fact that the other two ended up being right made it clear that the leak was legit. News would be slow until a few months later when the Twitter account was updated to give more info to fans. The upcoming anime was a movie set to kick off something called the Berserk Saga Project which was dedicated to adapting the entirety of the manga as faithfully as possible. Shortly thereafter, it was revealed that the studio behind the project was Studio 4C, who had previously done work on things like the Animatrix and Halo Legends and Batman Gotham Knight. A pretty impressive resume, all things considered. There was still discourse in the fandom, of course, especially once more and more details about the project became clear. A new Berserk adaptation was always going to be open to scrutiny because, well, Berserk is a very loved property and people have a lot of feelings about how it should be handled. But things would get even more dicey when it was revealed that the start of the Berserk Saga project meant that we were getting a three-film adaptation of the Golden Age developed simultaneously and released over the course of a year. Yeah, this is still a big point of contention, to be honest. On one hand, starting at the Golden Age makes a lot of sense. It's the chronological start of the series. It allows for you to get to experience the characters as they grow and easily track their development linearly, and while the omission of the Black Swordsman arc entirely means that you miss the elements of foreshadowing and dramatic tension, it makes the later parts of the Golden Age stand out much more in contrast. Artistically, if this was going to be the start of the Berserk Saga project, then doing this could ensure a consistent experience in terms of animation and direction and creative talent involved. Additionally, from a business perspective, it makes some sense. 
Berserk is popular, but not that popular compared to, say, Full Metal Alchemist and Dragon Ball. It's not a series where everyone is just going to know the story and what all happens in it. So starting back at the beginning allows new fans the chance to dip in without feeling overwhelmed. At the same time, the Golden Age is the most popular part of the series, and generally the one that receives the most critical attention and praise. There's a fair chance that you'd be able to rope people in with it easier than trying to get people into, you know, the violent, edgy demon killing of the Black Swordsman arc. At the same time, though, that's as much of a reason to not do this. Part of why the Golden Age arc is the most famous part of Berserk is because it's already been adapted before. It's most of what Berserk fans already know. By doing this, you're inviting yourself to direct comparisons to the original Mighty Seven series, which is big shoes to fill. You have to convince old fans that your version of the Golden Age is worth experiencing again, and people who have never experienced Berserk that this is the way to get into it. Here's some tea. While Berserk fans generally love the Golden Age, in some ways, Berserk fans also hate the Golden Age. Not because of the content itself, but because of how it overshadows the rest of the franchise. For an arc that's only around 25% of Berserk's story, it dominates the way the series is perceived and what people know about it. The Golden Age was part of the reason why a lot of the fanbase got into Berserk, but it also meant you had a decade or so of build-up for something besides the Golden Age people desperate to see any other arc but it finally put onto screen. Remember, Berserk 97 ended on a cliffhanger, and there were people more interested in seeing the direct fallout from that than just restarting all the way back at Guts joining the Band of the Hawk. But nevertheless, the release date of the films were getting closer and closer. Various different promotions were done for it, from things like Guts and Griffith's armor being included in the original release of Dragon's Dogma, to the fast food chain Lotteria doing a special Berserk tie-in, to my favorite, this weird trailer that seems to be narrated by the Disney voiceover guy. <laughs> Over 33 million copies sold worldwide. Two men born under an evil sign. Only one decision remains. To fight or die. Anyway, soon enough, the films collectively referred to as the Golden Age Trilogy were released. The first film, The Egg of the King, came out in Japanese cinema in February of 2011. The second film, The Battle of Doldry, released in June that same year. And finally, the third film, The Advent, released in February of 2012. Distribution rights were picked up by Viz Media, who brought the films overseas for a home release. And how's the trilogy overall? Eh, fine, I guess? The Golden Age Trilogy is exactly what it says on the tin. It's the Golden Age, adapted as a trilogy of films. Yep, that's certainly it. This is certainly the Golden Age. Mm-hmm. Okay. There's not much I can really talk about in terms of story here. It's the Golden Age again. Guts and Griffith and Casca, Band of the Hawks, 100 Year War, etc, etc, etc. Because of this, I guess it's best to focus on the direction and how this version of the Golden Age differs from its predecessors. The stated goal for this project was to create an adaptation of Berserk that was faithful to the original manga, and whether or not they achieved that is questionable. From a certain perspective, yes, it is closer to the 97 version. At the very least, fan-favorite characters like Salat and Skull Knight, who were omitted from that series, do make an appearance here, and that's cool and nice. And plotlines such as the tension between the King and Princess Charlotte are introduced, though not explored to the same extent they are in the manga, plus the fact that these were theatrical films meant that they could get away with portraying things that they couldn't necessarily on TV, like nudity and violence, which helps replicate a lot of the more intense moments of the original. But then there's some other parts that just don't work. The trilogy has to deal with trying to adapt 10 volumes worth of story, which already needed 25 episodes to tell before, into three feature-length movies. There's no way to do that without some cutting down, and thankfully not too many of the very important story elements got cut, minus some stuff related to the Queen and Minister Foss, who were basically just adapted out entirely, but rest assured, all the plot-important stuff is there. And just the plot-important stuff. That's where the real problem kicks in. Watching the Golden Age trilogy feels like watching a Cliff Notes version of the Golden Age. 
All the important beat-by-beat -beat plot points are represented, but so much of the actual characterization and beauty is lost in the process. The first film is by far the worst offender of this, with its very, very short 77-minute runtime, counting both opening and ending credits. For a comparison, the same story events were covered in episode 2 through 10 of the 97 anime, and at an estimated 22 minutes per episode, that's 198 minutes total, about two and a half times longer. And I know that longer doesn't necessarily equal better, and that the 97 anime included filler scenes for this portion of the story, but it just shows how bare bones the first film feels. To give a specific example, after Guts is forced to join the Band of the Hawk, the movie does a three-year time skip in which we cut to Guts as a valued member and friend to everyone else in the group. It feels wrong. We didn't lose anything plot important in that gap, sure, but we lost the organic development of Guts' character. The films do get better as they go on, sure. While I find the first film to be closer to the bad side of things, Movie 2 raises the quality back to passable thanks to some well-directed moments and a slightly longer runtime. There are parts of this that are honestly really great. The 100-man slayer fight is cool to see, and this film has the distinction of having the most homoerotic heterosexual sex scene I've seen in any media. But once again, we find a bit of an issue here of just omitting the really important parts. This is the portion of the Golden Age where the existential pondering of the characters really begins to take center stage, and that really isn't shown here. It's hard to really explore this without going into heavy spoiler details, so I'll just say this. Any berserk adaptation that doesn't portray the bonfire of dream scene is missing the mark, regardless of anything else it's doing. So many of these quiet, contemplative moments are just gone, which makes their reappearance in movie 3 even more shocking. Yeah, the third film in the Golden Age trilogy is honestly pretty good, if not outright great. It hits basically every point I would want it to. Like the 97 anime, it reduces the various fights that appear in this section in a way that fixes the pacing issues of the manga and gets rid of Wild, the worst berserk character. The emotional moments are all there. The two-hour runtime means there's plenty of breathing room. The brutality of the ending is shown to horrific and graphic detail to great effect. Fun fact, this film is so explicit in its graphic content that its theatrical release had to be edited down in order to fit an R rating, with its home release showing the full film uncut. And yeah, this film is brutal. At times, it can feel even more brutal than the manga. It can be legitimately hard to watch at moments, and I mean that as a compliment. This is how I want to feel when seeing the end of the Golden Age. Oh, and that's another benefit. This film actually shows the ending of the Golden Age. If you're someone who had been waiting years to see what happened after 97, you get a glimpse into it. The film ends in a place that leaves you wanting more, while still feeling like you've seen the climax to its end. Overall, the third movie in the series is a notable leap in quality over the first two, and manages to end this trilogy on a high note. That increase in quality extends not just to the storytelling, but the animation as well, which... Oh gosh, I, I guess I better talk about that. People have mixed feelings on the animation of the Golden Age trilogy, primarily because of its usage of CGI. Studio 4C elected to use cel-shaded 3D animations, mainly for large-scale battle scenes or other moments of action. It looks not great, which is strange. In some respects, the battle scenes in this are more impressive than they were in the 97 anime, where they were basically nothing. But here they are trying to create spectacle out of this animation style, but all I can notice is how everyone has the same face, and how low the frame rate is, and how obvious the switch between 2D and 3D is. And that's a shame, because the 2D moments in this look good. Really good. Dare I say, the best Berserk has ever looked in a medium outside of the manga. Just gorgeous background and lighting and character work that manages to capture a lot of the spirit of the manga. And the 3D work gets better as it goes on, especially by movie 3 once they realize that it looks more natural to do the lower body in CG and then animate the face in 2D. It's hard to tell if the animation getting better is due to the team being more experienced by the time movie 3 came out, or because they threw more money and time into this part because they knew that this was the most important to get right. The animation used to be a really, really sore sticking point for some people, with a lot swearing off this version entirely because of it. Over time though, it seems that feeling has lessened. There's still people who don't like the animation, sure, and it does have more than a few moments of jankiness, but over time that vocal hatred has died down, if anything because the Berserk fanbase would come to truly see what bad animation looked like. But we'll get to that when we get to that. The music of the Golden Age trilogy is 
different from 97, but overall pretty good. They got the main composer behind Evangelion to do the music, and the main thing I can say about it is that it sounds epic. It sounds like epic fantasy, which is good. You get these great orchestrations and chants and things like that, and the song Blood and Guts, which is used several times throughout the movies in several different variations, provides a distinct melody that can be applied to different contexts and emotions. I do prefer the 97 score simply for its uniqueness and atmosphere, and it's the one I find myself going back to and listening to on its own, but this is well done too. Also, I need to highlight the dub again. It's great. Viz made an effort to get back most of the original dub cast from the 97 series, and they're just as good as they ever were, if not better now that they've had a decade of additional experience under their belt. I honestly recommend the dub so much, it's about as good as you could want from something like this. Overall, my feelings on the Golden Age trilogy are complicated. Would I recommend watching them? It's hard to say, because while I do think that overall I have more positive feelings towards it than negative, and I do think the third film was straight up good, you have that lack of characterization and atmosphere dragging it down. The third movie does the scenes it does well, but without the proper setup for the cast, moments that should be gut-wrenching don't feel like they have the same effects because we just haven't gotten to spend the appropriate amount of time with these characters for those emotional beats to land. If someone were to get into Berserk via these movies, I don't think it would be a problem. After all, this is the version of the Golden Age you're going to find it more easily on store shelves and streaming services. But at the same time, it's hard to recommend them to people because the highest praise it feels like I can give is that it's the third best version of the Golden Age. It's hard to figure out exactly who these movies are for. Are they for the experienced Berserk fan, or are they for people trying to get into the series? Because once again, we come back to the issue that experienced Berserk fans didn't really want another adaptation of the Golden Age, and that most were content with either rereading the manga or watching the 97 anime over again. And if it's for new people trying to get into the series, then what's up with this opening? Each film of the trilogy shows the same opening sequence, a credits montage that shows moments of the series set to the song Aria by Suzumu Hirasawa. It's a great song and a fine enough opening, I guess, but there's just one problem. A good portion of this opening focuses on showcasing scenes and characters that don't appear in these movies. They aren't a part of the Golden Age. So why show them? Well, to reassure fans that yes, you do plan on covering these parts. This is the Berserk Saga project, after all. But if you aren't familiar with the story already, it feels out of place. Like, who's the Switch Girl? Who are these blonde people? What's that armor? Huh? And the opening only looks worse considering the events that followed. Remember how I said that the Golden Age trilogy gives proper ending to everything? <laughs> yeah, that's only partially true. See, once again, we get a post-credit scene of Guts suiting up, getting the Dragon Slayer sword, and going off into the distance. A title card appears telling us that this is only the beginning. Except it's not. This is the last frame of the Berserk Saga project. Yeah, so from my understanding, the Golden Age trilogy films didn't make a lot of money in theaters. At the very least, they didn't generate the type of buzz they were probably hoping for. It definitely seemed like they landed with a whimper, at least over here in the States, where they were released a little fanfare and warm at best reception. It's clear that Studio 4C wanted to do more. Their co-founder, Aiko Tanaka, said in an interview that she wanted to do a film adaptation of the Lost Children arc, and it was clear that they wanted to cover stuff that took place after this. But sadly, this wasn't meant to be. The project just died. Once again, a version of Berserk without an ending. And for a while, that was it. Occasionally, you'd hear word of another adaptation incoming, or Studio 4C being interested in doing more, but they were either just rumors or, or fans getting their hopes up. The fanbase continued to follow the manga and still wished to see a follow-up to the Golden Age done. And then, um, they, uh, they got their wish. So in December 2015's issue of Young Animal, a new Berserk animated adaptation was announced. There wasn't much info, just that NBC Universal would be airing a preview for it a few days later, and a quote from Miura saying that Guts would have his Black Swordsman appearance. But even that was enough to generate hype. You mean we were finally going to get some Black Swordsman stuff? After all this time? And then a few days after that, some promotional art dropped in wait. 
what's that brick structure that that's not just guts and his black swordsman get up that's lost children that wall is from lost children holy shit are they finally adapting the lost children arc this is gonna be so great holy shit finally and then the first teaser dropped at the end of the month and that's when things started taking a turn all because it showcased 3d animation and well essentially the same debate that sprung up around the golden age trilogy happened again is 3D animation and anime bad? Does it look good here? Is this an okay way for Berserk to be portrayed? Controversies continued to pile on as more and more info was revealed. It was eventually confirmed that the new project was a 12-episode anime series covering post-Golden Age material, which, you know, cool. Trailers continued to release to overwhelmingly mixed results, with the animation and music being major points of contention still. Despite everything, there were still some people that were trying their best to remain optimistic. And by some people, I mean me. Oh god, what did I sound like five years ago? <clears throat> I'm so hyped for this new series though. Even though the animations look off, I'm just so happy to get some more of it adapted. I actually don't think it looks too bad, at least in still images. The faces look good at least. And then just when it seems like things are starting to wind down, they release the titles of the first five episodes and reveal that the Black Swordsman and Lost Children arcs were being skipped over entirely. That was when shit really hit the fan for most people, because while Black Swordsman isn't too many people's favorite arcs and Lost Children is, well, I'm not going to get into that now. The fact of the matter is that finally getting a non-Golden Age adaptation of Berserk and then finding out it was going to be skipping over parts of the story that came right after the Golden Age and hadn't been properly adapted yet really set people off. It meant that characters and villains people had been wanting to see for years, like the Count and Rosine, were more than likely not going to appear. And yeah, sure enough, the show came and they just weren't there with no real explanation as to why. Yeah, things were looking pretty rough. Seemingly every new trailer or announcement was generating less and less hype. Trying to stay hopeful for the series felt more and more like an exercise in denial. Still, the anime, simply titled Berserk, made its premiere in July of 2016. So, here we have an adaptation made with generally poor animation that leaves out several important characters and subplots, skips entire arcs, and sanitizes some of the more explicit elements. It is the most disappointing media experience I've ever had. Look, Berserk 2016 isn't the worst piece of Berserk media out there. That title goes to the light novel The Flame Dragon Knight, though weirdly enough that was written by Berserk 2016 screenwriter. But it's certainly the biggest letdown, the one that did the most damage to the brand, and the one that had the most wasted potential overall. I don't want to be one of those clickbait types of critics who accentuates the negative and goes online and yells about a cartoon like, this is the worst show I ever watched, Berserk 2016 is garbage and here's why. But also, Berserk 2016 is garbage, and here's why. I guess let's start off with the most obvious question. Why does the show look like this? Why would you make the show this way? Berserk 2K16's animation is horrendous. There is no beating around the bush. It's not great, but with occasional downgrades like the Golden Age trilogy. It's not low budget, but charming the same way 97 was. It's just outright bad. It's an eyesore of flat three-dimensional character models moving stiffly like previs footage. I just... Do I even need to say anything? Look at this. Look at this. Look at this. I've seen people compare the animation here to a PS2 game, and I don't know if I agree with that, mainly because there is an actual Berserk PS2 game and it looks way more appealing. And all the stuff I'm showing you, this is the fixed Blu-ray version. It originally looked worse. Maybe you've seen this clip or this. There's just so much wrong with all of this. 
I'm going to try my best to explain what happened here with the animation, at least according to this Anime News Network article on the subject. So apparently producer Tetsuya Satomi of Linden Films came with the idea to do a 3D anime of Berserk. He knew this idea was ambitious, so he reached out to an anime studio called Gemba to work on it. They were a perfect choice as they had never been in charge of a full-length anime production before. Yeah, not exaggerating, literally never. They had done background work in CG assistance, but had never been the primary animator on anything before this. And they were aware this was a bad choice. Several members of the team expressed skepticism that they'd be able to do this while the series was being greenlit, but eventually they relented and began working under Leiden films. Then they just kept stepping on rakes over and over again. So a lot of people in the fan base have thrown criticism at Berserk 2016's director Shin Itagaki, mainly because, well, the dude isn't known for doing stuff like Berserk. He does 2D comedy anime. That's his whole thing. Like, he did a Devil May Cry anime once, but that's an anomaly on his resume. But I'm willing to give him the benefit of the doubt. People can be good at multiple things and exploring different genres. And also apparently his problem was actually wanting to stay too close to the source material. Yeah, Itagaki's vision was to try to replicate as much of the manga's detail as possible in a 3D environment. As you can tell from these comparisons, that did not happen. And like, yeah, of course it didn't happen. It couldn't happen. But he insisted on it, which led to a lot of conflicts between him and the animation team. They started working on the series in spring 2015, but didn't finalize what it would look like until December of that year, after the first trailer had been released. And then afterwards, they just scrapped everything used in that trailer and remade every single asset. Every. Single. One. 150 character models now had to be remade from scratch and the show was set to air in half a year. They didn't even get around to being able to animate episodes until March 2016, four months before the show aired. Oh, and then the character models were too detailed to even render, so they had to remove lines and edges and details in order to simplify the look enough to even get the damn thing in an animatable state, which is how we got such delightful faces as this. They also faced difficulties with trying to render the backgrounds. Not because of any programming error this time, no, but just because they were in such a tight schedule that they needed to be able to render backgrounds in less than 10 minutes, which meant a lot of the atmospheric lighting they were planning to add to the environments just never made it in. Oh, and then the secondary team working on animation on this tried to apply the shading style meant to imitate the hatching lines of the manga. They tried to use Adobe After Effects to automatically apply it to the models, but ran into difficulties in that this didn't work on things like swords, armor, or anything metallic, which is basically 90% of all textures in Berserk. So animators would have to go in and manually apply the hatching themselves, which probably took forever. I'd like to point out real quick that the existence of these hatch lines is a good example of how badly directed Berserk 2K16 was. Like, even if this was working as intended, even when it's on the relatively okay looking 2D animation, it still generally looks fucking awful. Like, the point of hatch lines in manga and illustrations is that they're used to blend into the brush and ink strokes you're already doing by taking advantage of the fact that most manga is done in a black and white color palette. It creates the illusion of flow and depth and space and lighting. But animation doesn't have that, not this type of animation animation at least. The general outline of objects and bodies are too solid, the colors too clearly defined, so when you try to apply this hatching, it doesn't look like authentic shading, it looks like you just cover the goddamn screen with pencil marks. And they keep moving and jittering, and it looks like garbage. This was a bad call from the get-go, and they really should have considered another shading style. So yeah, the animation looks like that because production was so rushed and behind schedule and mismanaged and just generally a mess. I do have sympathy for them. I'm sure the animators worked really, really hard, and I'm sorry for all the stress it seemed like they were under. A producer working at Gemba said that they really hoped season two of the show would improve and that they could fix this problem. The examples I've been using are from season two. All of these production problems explain why the animation was bad, sure, but I'm curious if they're also the explanation for other things, too. Like, was that the reason why we got the clang? <laughs> oh yeah, the clang. 
The second most infamous thing about Berserk 2K16. What is the clang, you might ask? The clang is the noise that Guts' sword, the Dragon Slayer, makes when it hits things, and the sound that basically anything Metallic in 2K16 makes. Now, I know what you may be thinking, Emily, it's just a sound effect of a sword. How bad can it be? Are you really going to be so nitpicky that you're going to criticize the sound bite of a sword? And to answer that, I'm going to do a fun little thing where I play you a short scene from Berserk 2016. And a warning, I am not going to edit this at all. I'm not going to adjust the audio mixing or anything. This is exactly how it sounds like in the finished product. But if you're someone who is startled by loud noises or is using headphones, here's your warning. It clangs when he touches his sword. It clangs when he swings at the air. It clangs when it hits bone. It is consistently clanging, clanging, clanging over and over again. Sound design is one of those things where generally if you notice it enough to comment on it, it's not really working. Like the ideal situation is that even if you have an iconic sound like the swinging of a lightsaber or the TARDIS materializing, they don't actively take you out of the scene. It simply exists as a part of the world. The clang is the opposite of that. You notice it every damn time. It's mixed way too loudly, which makes intense sword fights the most headache-inducing things in the world. It doesn't even sound like a sword either. It sounds like a frying pan. Just way too hollow and way too harsh. It's the same anger drums of anime sound effects. It's fucking awful, and it can ruin the show by itself if you're really, really sensitive to noises like this. But you know, this is all the obvious stuff. Everyone makes fun of the animation and the clang. They're the most basic jokes about Berserk 2016, and they tend to dominate every conversation about the series. But is it good outside of it? Like, bad animation and production qualities can be ignored if the story it's telling is compelling enough and the Berserk manga has a very good story. So with that in mind, let's disregard all the actual production stuff of Berserk 2K16 and just focus on the narrative. So Berserk 2K16 consists of two 12-episode seasons, the first of which adapts the arc of the manga known simply as the Conviction Arc, the first part after the end of the Golden Age. <laughs> I say simply. It actually can feel complicated because the Conviction Arc is really composed of three sub-arcs referred to as the Lost Children chapter, the Binding Chains chapter, and the birth ceremony chapter. Though this terminology is really only utilized in the manga, I find that in actual online spaces and conversations, most people just tend to look at it as the Lost Children arc followed by the Conviction arc with the understanding that those two parts of the story are linked together. For the sake of clarity in this video, and as it relates to Berserk 2K16, that's the terminology I'll be using. The Conviction arc mainly centers around a newly revealed religious order called the Holy See, who are tracking down Guts as they believe him to be an evil prophesized figure. At the heart of this conflict is a structure known as the Tower of Conviction, and the town around it, where supposed heretics are brought in by the religious leaders and punished for their crimes. This is where Berserk really gets to explore a brand new theme. What if religion was bad? Okay, that's a bit of an oversimplification that makes it sound like an art atheism post. A better way to summarize it is that the Conviction Arc asks interesting questions regarding humanity's relationship to gods. What do you do if the gods you follow are wicked and unjust? What if gods are just manifestations of our own fears and worries and sins? Do we, as a society, let fear overtake us, be it fear of the divine or fear of each other? And what is more important, fear or love? Being the first post-Golden Age arc, this is also where we're introduced to a lot of the new characters that will come to make a Berserk supporting cast. There's Farnese, a sadomasochist and leader of the Holy Iron Chain Knights, a division of the Holy See. She has this honestly really compelling arc of realizing that she's useless and figuring out what to do about it. Then there's Serpico, Farnese's loyal assistant, who is determined to take care of her and stay by her side no matter what. He has this interesting arc of being the cool 
coolest dude. Next we have Isidro, a young boy with dreams of being a swordsman who desperately wants to learn from Guts. The Conviction arc, while not my favorite, is still a really great story with some memorable moments, fun characters, and a lot of important developments, both in terms of the lore and in the characterization. Plus, its seemingly focused nature, being mostly concentrated in this one town and surrounding area, makes it perfect for adaptations as you don't have to worry about crafting this big epic tale the same way you did with the Golden Age. This is relatively low-key in comparisons of scale and stakes. So yeah, I get why the anime would want to start here compared to other places, though I can't help but feel a bit saddened by the lack of Lost Children arc though. However, like I said, I can't really spend the time to get into it. The narrative of the show itself is really what I want to focus on. I just think that it's a bit bad that they skipped the Lost Children arc, considering that it's part of the Conviction arc. Like, it's like deciding you're gonna adapt a Storm of Swords and then choosing to start in the middle for some reason. But my frustrations with this arc getting removed go well beyond just me being upset that an arc was cut. So okay, let me describe the Lost Children arc for you really quickly because I feel like I need to and I just love it a lot. So Lost Children is basically another Black Swordsman style story, a relatively simple affair in which Guts and Puck have to go kill some demons. Specifically, it focuses on this small village in the woods where children occasionally go missing and swarms of demonic quote quote elves run around and attack the villagers. They meet with this young girl named Jill who informs them of the legend that these elves come from a place called the Misty Valley, based on a fairy tale that the children used to tell each other. Guts then has to figure out what's taking the children, where they're being taken, who's controlling the elves, and how this all ties back to Rosine, a former friend of Jill's who went missing years ago. On the surface, Lost Children is a very simple mini-arc. It's another monster-killing story, one that doesn't add much to the main plot or lore of the series and only takes up about two volumes. It could easily serve as a standalone adventure, but that's the appeal of it. If I had to compare it to anything, it would be one of the Witcher short stories. It's the tale of a man traveling, finding some fairy tale premise, and trying to figure out how to solve it while things get more gruesome and morally ambiguous than originally thought. And it asks a lot of interesting questions about the way humans perpetuate violence and the cycle of abuse and the concept of escapism versus reality. In a lot of ways, it serves as Mira flexing his strength. After doing 10 volumes of Golden Age material, he makes one last basic Guts Goes to Kill a Demon story and shows just how much he's grown as an artist and a writer. It's cashing in on all that potential we saw back with Guts' fight with the Count. It's Miura finally getting to do a Black Swordsman arc with a deeper understanding of who Guts is and what Berserk is going to be about. You still have over-the-edge asshole Guts, but he has more nuance now. Not just because we the reader have that context, but because Miura has more of a clear understanding of the humanity that lies behind Guts' presentation of anger. And when it comes down to it, that's why this arc is so damn important. In the grand scheme of things, what the Conviction arc sets to do is transition past the Golden Age and create Berserk's newest status quo. It's setting up not just what the plot from this point forward is going to focus on or what characters we're going to see, but primarily show how Guts is going to change over time. Without going to specifics, this arc challenges Guts to give up the mantle and attitude of the Black Swordsman and regain some of his Golden Age warmth. And it's not like this came out of nowhere. Once again, thesis statement as early as Volume 2, but it's definitely a shift that's important and seeing Guts make this change for himself is honestly incredible. But the thing is that it's only incredible when you understand where Guts has been. And that's where 2016 fails. There's a scene early on in the Conviction arc where Guts goes to visit this blacksmith named Goto and everyone else who lives with him. It's one of the most important moments in the series, in my opinion, not because of any huge plot beat that happens, but because of the nonstop barrage of people calling Guts an asshole for going on his quest for revenge and watching him go through the realization of how self-destructive his behavior has been. One of the things Berserk has always excelled at is scenes in which a character who signifies a basic trope realizes they signify a trope and then decide to do what they can to evolve beyond that. And this is another one of those moments, and it's really great. When Guts finally comes to his senses, it's honestly one of the most powerful moments on the manga solely because at this point we've seen this man at both his highest and lowest points, and we can understand how everything has been affecting him and what he's done wrong. The 2016 anime adapts this part in episode 4, and 
It's fine, I guess. It's all there. But it doesn't stick that landing. It feels so hollow. And a large part of that is simply because, well, we as the audience didn't get to actually see this version of Guts do anything all that bad. We get one episode of setup, then two episodes of Guts escaping from the Jesus cops, and yeah, he's a bit snarky and rude in them, but nothing quite to the cold, heartless nature we saw in his worst moments from the Black Swordsman arc or even Lost Children. It starts to feel like an informed flaw. We watch scene after scene of characters telling Guts how much he fucked up and how terrible he's gotten, but we don't know that. If you didn't read the manga, that would be a fully informed attribute. There's a reason I said earlier that it's worth reading the Black Swordsman arc even if you were struggling to vibe with it. You could maybe skip it in an adaptation, but to skip it and Lost Children would be to skip so much of the actual important text of Berserk. That's five volumes worth of setups in character development and thematic exploration. To just not do it at all is missing the point. And yeah, I get why they would skip it. Beyond any concerns over the content of Lost Children, since it can be very dark, you also have to work with only having 12 episodes to tell the entirety of the conviction arc. I get it. Cuts had to be made, but that justification doesn't necessarily make it good, especially when it comes at a detriment to the rest of the story. It really highlights one of Berserk 2016's biggest narrative problems. What you're watching is Berserk, sure, mostly done true to the text, but with none of the emotion or weight or context that gives the series any meaning. I don't know how Berserk 2K16 would play for someone who hasn't read the manga or hasn't watched any of the Golden Age adaptations because it really does just feel like it's missing so much that would help decipher exactly what's going on. And what stuff is actually adapted doesn't fare much better either. Let's say you're someone who's watching Berserk 2K16 and you either know all the context needed or its absence doesn't bother you and you're just trying to engage with what's actually there on screen. Berserk 2K16 just isn't a compelling show to watch. This comes down less to the script and writing itself and more towards the directing. I know I said I was willing to look past the animation, but I can't deny the effect it has here. It's hard to find yourself emotionally invested in the story when you're looking at characters that look flat at best, terrifying at worst. It doesn't help that, unlike the Golden Age, which moved very fast and had a lot of various low-key scenes, the conviction arc and really every arc of Berserk post-Golden Age moves at a slower pace while placing more of an emphasis on bombastic supernatural battles, so the animation has to do a lot more heavy lifting. The lighting too is also a problem. I know they're having issues with their engine and stuff like that, so I don't want to tear into them too hard, but it just feels so off. None of the atmosphere is there. Take the scene, which is supposed to be at dawn, just as the sun begins to rise from a very dark night. It looks not like that. This is nitpicky, sure, but that stuff adds up. Atmosphere is such a hugely important part of Berserk, and seeing it not really done here is so strange. Also another nitpick, but the credits just start rolling at this moment, too. And I know this is a timing thing that the episode is running a bit long, so they have to run the credits over the final scene or something in order to make it fit for network broadcast, but did it need to be in the middle of the frame? where it's directly covering the characters who you've positioned in the middle frame, meaning you can't see these two start to fight. And this isn't a one-time thing. There are multiple episodes that have this problem, where it's not just running the credits, but over the middle of the frame where the characters are also positioned. Fucking bizarre choice. Weirdly enough, part of the problem here is also just how faithful some of this is to the manga. I know it seems weird to complain about faithfulness, especially after I just launched to a long rant about them leaving out stuff, but I guess what I mean is that when it gets down to the actual content of the Conviction arc and beyond, it tries very hard to be a true-to-the-text adaptation. Sometimes this means replicating famous and iconic pages and spreads, which doesn't quite work because we're working with this low-quality animation and lighting and everything. It just looks bad and doesn't translate well. Then you have a more widespread issue, which is handling Berserk's tone and storytelling. One of the things that's really interesting about the manga is that Miura, as an artist, it was very versatile. Which is to say that for every panel like this, there's a panel like this. This change in style is something that is really prominent with characters like Puck and Isidro, aka those who are meant to provide the series with levity and comic relief. Occasionally, Miura will have Puck go into his chestnut form and just be there in the frame and make a throwaway line of dialogue. This 
arguably works in the manga because the way it's placed in the page makes it clear that it's an aside and you can ignore it or look at it quickly and then move on. You can make these shifts a lot easier and it doesn't feel really jarring. Berserk 2K16 tries to keep these in, as many of them as they can, and it really does not work. It means the show, which already doesn't have a good visual style, diverges from it to become something wacky for a moment. It contrasts so heavily with the colored backgrounds and the 3D models. The puck asides, which are cute when reading, become dialogue soup when layered over the actual serious thing that's happening. And when it absolutely doesn't work, it can straight up ruin good moments. Take this scene from season two, for example. These two are having a serious conversation about death and grief, and then the sexy sax song starts playing and everything turns into a cartoon so quickly. This moment is included in the manga, yes, and this is how it's done there, but your job as a director is to realize when something like this won't translate to screen and do what you can to convey the idea while adapting it to animation. While I have the sexy sax song on my mind, the music also doesn't help. I know there are people out there who call the soundtrack the most redeeming aspect of Berserk 2K16, and um, I get why people would feel that way, but I don't know if I would call the score all that good. In all actuality, after binging the series, I think I sort of hate it, or at least the way it's used here. It's strange. The music is done by the same guy who did the score for the Golden Age films, and I liked the music there well enough, but there's just nothing here that's really worth grabbing onto. Most of the main melodies are very forgettable, except for Blood and Guts, which was taken from the Golden Age films, and I don't like the version of it here. It's loaded with these heavy electric guitars in a way that sounds way too try-hard, like a metal guitar cover you'd find on YouTube. When it's not that, Berserk 2K16 really loves using these psycho string chords over and over again for the commercial bumpers, or just in a really intense moment, and it sounds bad because it just feels so unmotivated. And then there's the hi-yo. Oh god, the hi-yo. So once again, Suzumu Hirasawa wrote a song for Berserk, as he's done for every Berserk adaptation so far, this one called Hi-Yo. And much like a song Forces in the 97 series, Hi-Yo is utilized primarily for next episode previews. But unlike Forces, which only made one or two actual in-episode appearances, Hi-Yo is used so often. I tried to keep count and it's used in almost every single episode, sometimes twice an episode. Whenever a battle scene or a moment that's supposed to feel epic is happening, expect to hear the distinct opening few notes to Hi-Yo. There is legit a moment in one episode where they start playing Hi-Yo, then cut away to do a quick scene with another character, and then come back and start playing Hi-Yo again from the very beginning. It's unbelievable. I like Hi-Yo, it's a good song, but it gets used so much in the show that you start to become numb to it. It goes in that same corner as the clang, where its overuse and distinctiveness feels like a punchline more than actually helping set the scene like they wanted. This isn't even getting into stuff like the bad camera angles, the weird cuts, the way that the series loves to do these elaborate camera spinning things in order to help make the frame interesting even if it doesn't really need it. While things like the budget restrictions or production troubles can explain some of the choices here, the fact is that Berserk 2K16 has a lot of flaws that aren't up to any issues with rendering software or whatever. Rather, they're from a director who's just not doing a good job conveying this material and is making a lot of poor choices. All of this combines to a series that just feels like it's happening. Like, none of the emotional moments hit, none of the dramatic moments hit, none of the scary moments hit, none of the action moments hit. Scenes play theoretically suggesting a sense of urgency, but the material isn't actually presented in a way that makes you care or make you feel invested. If I had to think of any comparison, Berserk 2016 reminds me a lot of that Killing Joke animated film that came out a few years ago. It's an adaptation that technically hits all the plot points and dialogue of the original comic, sure, but by simplifying the art and animation style so much, by removing the original context of the work, by not really understanding how to hit the emotional moments you need to, you end up with an adaptation that's essentially just the story of the original with nothing that made it good or interesting and distinct in the first place. The adaptational equivalent of microwave mashed potatoes. One of the problems with this, though, is that it does the opposite of what an adaptation theoretically should be. 
An adaptation should carry on the strongest aspects of a work while figuring out ways to fix the weak parts. But when you don't have the strong parts, it makes your audience start to notice the weak parts as well. And that's the real sin of this series. It makes you start to notice the flaws of the source material. Things like how Guts really isn't in the conviction arc that much, or how slow the pacing can be relative to the amount of plot-relevant stuff that happens in it, or Nina. Oh, Nina. Nina is a young sex worker who is part of a small found family of sex workers that reside outside of the Tower of Conviction. She's suffering from an unnamed illness, heavily implied to be an STD, that is slowly killing her and may one day affect her mind. She's also a coward and selfish and frequently makes terrible decisions. Just to give one example, there's a moment where she takes the guy she's interested in to a pagan orgy without letting him know, and when he reacts in surprise because, you know, Paganism is illegal here, and also he wasn't warned beforehand, and it's a full-blown goat head pagan orgy. She panics and thinks he's going to tell on her, so she pushes him off a cliff to what she thinks is his death. That's just a small taste of things. There's even a moment where a member of the Holy See comes in to take and torture someone Nina's supposed to guard, and she just hands the person over, and even the guard comments they didn't need to do anything to Nina to get her to give him what he wants. She's one of the most hated characters in the manga, with really only Wild causing as much passionate disapproval from fans. And this is by design. Nina isn't supposed to be likable. She knows that she's a coward, and she knows that she's selfish. Whenever faced with a decision, Nina will make the wrong one. That's how she is. But the point that Miura seem to be making with her is that even though Nina is terrible and frequently makes the life of those around her worse, she will still be shown with love and mercy even from those she wrongs. It's meant to contrast with the way the church reacts to people, showing that this small band of sex workers acts with a more religious concept of forgiveness than the literal church itself. And the ending of her storyline, when she realizes that she wants to live because she's able to feel fear in the face of death, is one of the more memorable moments of the arc. Whether or not this worked for you, depends. I can totally understand why someone would hate Nina in the same way that I can understand why someone would love her. What's interesting is that Nina is a very, very controversial character, and the release of Berserk 2016 saw a huge increase in Nina hate. She went from being a character people were just simply annoyed with to being labeled as the worst Berserk character. It was a huge change. And while some of this can be explained by Berserk 2016 exposing the conviction arc to a section of the fanbase who had never seen that part of the story before, it really points to something about this show that made such a negative impression on people. I've seen people defend manga Nina, but I have never seen anything but vitriol for anime Nina. And the weird thing is, Berserk 2016 didn't do anything different with her. They didn't cut out any important scenes, they didn't add filler or anything that ate up screen time or introduced some new terrible thing she did. They just did all her scenes from the manga, exactly how the manga did it. And fans hated it. They hated her, hated how awful she made things, hated how she complicated the plot, hated how she took important screen time away from Guts and the rest of the gang. And once you notice these aspects there, it's almost unavoidable to notice those flaws in the manga too. I'm using this as an example to show how they should have just not. Not saying that they should have adapted Nina out entirely, because that wouldn't work, nor would I want that. But they should have been able to look at how this part, that arguably barely worked in the manga, and figure out how it could be shortened or changed for the anime. The same way the 97 series was able to recognize that they didn't need all the fights later in the Golden Age. But instead, we get a million does anyone else fucking hate Nina posts? There are various controversies surrounding Berserk 2K16 in the fanbase. You know, beyond the fact that a large amount of fans hated it. There was the potential whitewashing of Casca. Casca isn't present for the first few episodes of 2016, not in person at least. What we do see of her is in the opening theme and occasional flashbacks to the Golden Age. And in these scenes, Casca's skin looks light. Like, really light. Almost more like a white redhead than the dark-skinned, dark-haired woman that she is. 
This was actually a big, big point of contention for a while because fans weren't quite sure what was going on here. If this was just an overly aggressive filter or if this was the deliberate lightening of Casca's skin color, something that 100% has been happening and was already a point of debate when it came to the Golden Age movies. Even Kotaku ran an article on it. In the end, Casca did show up proper in the show and her skin color wasn't whitewashed, though it does seem a bit lighter compared to her 97 appearance. That's... yeah. Oh, and then there was the stuff with the English dub, which, um, that was a whole thing. So it was announced early in the series airing that Crunchyroll had gotten the distribution rights to the show and were going to be partnering with Funimation for making an English dub and home release. So far, fans were like, whatever, but the English dub did excite people as fans generally love Berserk's prior English dub cast. And there was a lot of hope that they'd be able to get that cast back, especially since a lot of the Japanese voice actors from the Golden Age films reprised their role in the series, so surely the same could be done here, right? And then it wasn't. The entire main cast was replaced and no official public reason was provided. So here's what we do know. Berserk 2016 is the first time since the 1997 Dreamcast game, Sword of the Berserk, that the company NYAV Post weren't involved in the dubbing of a Berserk property. In 2016 case, the dub was handled by BangZoom Entertainment. So okay, that should be simple, right? Studio changes, so cast changes as well. Talent is handled differently, recording is done in different places, different contracts and terms. It sucks, but it happens. But then Sean Schimmel, the voice of Goku from Dragon Ball Z, started talking shit about it. He made this very long and very angry Twitter thread that has sadly now been lost to time, with the only evidence of it besides hearsay being this catched version of the first tweet that I sent to my friend back in 2017. Schimmel, who had voiced Gaston in the 97 series in the Golden Age trilogy, was asking Crunchyroll why NYAV posts in the original cast weren't brought back. He expressed anger and disappointment that they weren't a part of 2016, saying that the reasons why they were recast wasn't for money, but for a really scummy reason. It's interesting to note that Schemmel's character Gaston isn't in Berserk 2K16, so this isn't him being mad that he personally wasn't doing voice lines for the new show, but rather that the original cast as a whole wasn't invited. Also interesting to remember is that Berserk 2016 was distributed by Funimation, aka the English licensor of Dragon Ball Z, the show that Schemmel plays the lead on, so he was really biting the hand here. This is more than likely why the thread was deleted with all remnants of it taken off the internet. Someone actually got in contact with Bang Zoom Entertainment and they gave a, well, a PR response, saying that they really wanted to get the original cast back and tried hard to pull for it, but things like scheduling issues kept it from working out and that they were directed by the distributor to recast instead. Fine enough, I can believe it, but that still doesn't explain the stuff that Schemmel was talking about, nor does it explain why the leads of the 97 series all expressed enthusiasm to return. I don't know, it's odd. Regardless, Berserk 2016 got an English dub with a new cast and uh, I don't like it. With all due respect to the voice actors and the localizers and all that, this just did not work for me. I will acknowledge that I have a bias here in that, well, like I've said, I've been watching the original 97 English dub once a year for over a decade now. Those voices are internalized in my head and it's hard to move past that. But a lot here just doesn't work. And it's not the actor's fault because I'm familiar with this voice cast. Most of them are prolific and have done great in other things, but these voices don't sound right. They don't give the gravitas to the characters you need. And worst of all, it never sounds natural. It always sounds like a voice someone is putting on, and that really doesn't sell these moments. And there's the scripting itself. The dialogue in the dub is, well, sometimes it's just an accurate translation of the manga or Japanese script, and that's great, but sometimes you get these really awkward phrasings meant to match the lip flaps. Stuff like, that news is old. 
Burning people to death isn't limited to only the clerics, is it? See? Her ass would look good on fire. If I'm allowed to put on my fandom nitpick helmet, there's a really big plot hole that the dub introduces in episode 9. So Serpico is Farnese's half-brother. Their father was a nobleman who slept with a commoner and didn't realize that she had a child until years later when Serpico was Farnese's assistant. And Farnese isn't aware that Serpico is her sibling, which causes some conflict as the two have to navigate their emotions towards each other and the way they see each other. It's not the hugest plot point in Berserk, but it's pretty vital to the storyline of two of the main leads. And then in episode 9 of the dub, Farnese just calls Serpico her brother and mentions our father. Like, the Japanese version doesn't do this, so I'm not sure why this got brought into things. But it's such a weird change that honestly ruins the arc of these two characters and makes not a lot of sense. Especially considering season 2 gives us a flashback episode that explains the whole sibling thing and shows that Farnese doesn't know. And this wasn't fixed on the Blu-ray or anything, and as far as I know, it hasn't been addressed. Not to start a conspiracy theory, but the weird dub scripting mixed with the recastings because of scheduling conflicts makes me think that this was a dubbing process that was rushed. And I don't mean this in a they-didn't-care way, but rather that there was pressure from the companies involved to just get this done as quickly as possible and as efficiently as possible, even if it meant not double-checking your scripts or not waiting for the original voice cast to become available. Also, this is a sidebar, but to prep for this video, I went ahead and ordered the complete series on Blu-ray because it was the easiest and cheapest way to obtain a copy of the second season. And I noticed that it came with a code for a digital copy, and I didn't really need to use it, but, well, it's included, so I might as well redeem it. So I entered the code and hit the redeem button, and I got this message. This digital copy code is not yet active. Which is a weird message to get, right? Like, not that the code wasn't valid or that I entered it wrong, but that it wasn't active yet. Which didn't really make sense because this was a years-old home release of a years-old anime. Why wouldn't the code be active yet? But I still kept trying and typing in the code over again in different ways to make sure it wasn't some weird verification thing or something, and then I got an idea, and I went to the search bar and saw the reason why the code didn't work. Berserk 2016 is no longer on the Funimation official streaming site. That's why it doesn't recognize the code. The episodes aren't on this platform anymore. But this is a brand new Blu-ray! The digital code sticker is right on the shrink wrap! And you can buy this from the Funimation store right now! And it says, include the digital copy right there! Like, holy fuck, sort this shit out, Funimation! This is both hilarious and embarrassing! But yeah, reactions to Berserk 2016 were pretty negative overall. It got some early, mildly positive buzz from critics, but that muted over time as the fan backlash and controversies became more and more prominent. So when a 12-episode second season was announced, fans responded with an exhausted, Oh god, why? But I mean, it didn't need to be bad, right? The group struggled with their first outing, but maybe with more experience under their belt, they could get it working and working well. After all, the Golden Age trilogy had their fair share of growing pains, but by the end they were pretty good, so maybe that could happen here, right? They could take this opportunity to make the second season better. In a lot of ways it's worse. Okay, okay, okay. So season 2 of Berserk 2016, sometimes called Berserk 2017 by fans, adapts the first half of the next arc, known as the Falcon of the Millennium Empire arc, or the Millennium Falcon arc if you're not afraid of getting sued. I know this seems silly to say, considering that the arc starts in like volume 21, but this is where Berserk finally settles down into its status quo and what the rest of the series will be like. Our main cast is all grounded and established, we have our goal, we can now follow these characters on their quest. This is where the story notably splits into two very distinct directions, Guts and his JRPG party as they set forth on on their journey to a mystical elf island, and Griffith and his army as he continues trying to get his own kingdom. This is also where things take a gradual turn into… something more like Shrek? Things get really into fairy tale territory as we start seeing more and more creatures beyond just demons, and we get introduced to magic and witches and the concept of the astral world, and we meet the best character, she who is the cinnamon roll, and one of the neatest inclusions to the story Mira ever made. It's 
honestly really cool, and I love this arc so much, and I dare say that disregarding Lost Children, Falcon of the Millennium Empire is my favorite arc in the manga because it just captures so much about what makes the series great and has so many memorable moments, and every character develops and it feels appropriately epic in scale and scope up until its end, which is one of the most jaw-dropping things I've seen in any work of fiction and a true showcase of Miura's skill as an illustrator. It's top-notch stuff from beginning to end. And maybe that's why my reaction to season two is so much more mixed to negative, because in some ways some of what I love about the arc and the manga comes through. Characters I adore, like Shirk and that little weirdo Sonia, are still here. I still like seeing Guts with this JRPG party. We still get the scenes with Griffith and his army that I find very fascinating and love to analyze, but it's not enough. And once again, we come back to that issue of conveying the narrative. There's so much here that just doesn't feel like it's doing the material justice. The character beats still aren't being hit. The action scenes, which are some of the highlights of this arc, just can't live up to the hype. The animation is still really, really bad, which is strange. Sometimes the animation's good. Like episode 14, the episode that focuses primarily on Serpico and Farnese's backstory genuinely looks pretty good for the most part. Granted, a lot of this is because it's mostly in a black void and the plot is cut up so much that it barely reads even if you do remember this chapter from the manga, but it's by far the best looking episode of the series and legitimately impressed me while I was watching. But then you get episode 21, which is infamous for being the worst looking episode of the entire series. And for good reason. Nothing here works. This is where some of the most notorious animation moments come from. The characters look dead and motionless. The side characters' lips don't move so you can't tell who is talking. The scene is surrounded by this never-ending fire that looks more like a Windows 97 screensaver than actual fire. What really makes it worse is that this is one of the most iconic moments from the series. This is like fucking up Goku becoming Super Saiyan for the first time. It's inexcusably bad and even on the fixed Blu-ray it looks awful. Much like season one, season two at its best just sort of happens. In some ways, the issue here is worse than season one, as the Falcon of the Millennium Empire arc is way less concentrated and focused than the Conviction arc, meaning that it's very easy for the episodes to feel aimless, especially given that it only covers half of the arc, meaning that a lot of the payoff isn't there at all. It's another case of the show making the original material look worse. In the manga, this part of the story is great, in the show, it's nothing, and it really highlights the potentially weaker elements of the original material. Like I said, this is the part of the story where magical elements get introduced, which is fun and neat, but it also means a lot of explaining these magical elements. In the manga, this works pretty fine because those blocks of text can be read at your own pace and are accompanied by visuals that make these moments feel less bad. In the anime, though, it starts to feel like... It's my belief that the views of everyone inhabiting the physical realm are wrong. The hill on which this church stands it was once home to a temple to the spirits of this land. In right order to now, Shirky's trapped in the spirit realm. The holy she probably melted into this pool when she became one with the water spirit. If we wake her body that's before her soul is back, who knows what the effects may be? Spiritual form of the shrine that stood before the church, church rendering her an invalid. Then what do you suggest we do? So much of season two is exposition dumps about magic and the astral world mixed in with these low quality action scenes. No real moments of character development, nothing that feels like dynamic world building, and the exclusion of characters like the Moonlight Child and Ganishka, who is the main villain of the arc, means that once again we have another Berserk adaptation where important characters are cut out, meaning any attempt to continue from this point forward would be incredibly, incredibly challenging. The Ganishka removal feels extra silly because not only is this guy the main villain of the arc, but he's also the primary force behind the huge war against the Kushans going on and the main antagonist for Griffith's side of the story, meaning any scenes referencing this fact just rings so hollow and means so little. Take the finale of season two, where Sonia the little lovable weirdo tells Shirk that the town is going to be attacked soon as a way to set up Ganishka and the Kushans coming, but Ganishka hasn't been introduced at all yet, and we have no fucking clue who the Kushans are really and what their deal is. And the fact that it ends before said 
battle and instead on a small-scale scuffle against some nightmare fuel-inducing pirates is so fucking weird. And then there's the final scene of the show. Oh my god, the final scene. It's a small two-minute segment of Guts and his JRPG party in this tavern, and it looks good? Like, legitimately very good. The character designs, the lighting, the 2D animation. Fuck, even the hat shading looks good. They're able to replicate Mira's art style perfectly, showing off so much personality in the faces and movement of the characters by also shifting art style as the tone shifts. For a brief two-minute window, Berserk 2017 becomes a gorgeous show to look at. And then they roll the credits over it. In the middle of the frame, so that you can't see it. And then the scene ends. This small scene of simply the group in the tavern, and this is what they spent their animation effort on. And then they rolled the credits over it. I can't think of a more fitting ending for Berserk 2K16. A small title card shows up that says, The story continues, like all other Berserk 2016 episodes, but sadly this was not to be. Unlike season 1, which ended up with a preview for season 2, there was nothing here. No future announcements. The show quietly ended just like that, in the middle of an arc with a vague promise for more. Once again, another version of Berserk without an ending. When I consider a piece of media to be low quality, I try to put it in two different subsections. Is it low quality because of the presence of bad, or is it low quality because of the absence of good? Both don't make for an enjoyable viewing experience, but they're very different things. Berserk 2016 has the rare distinction of being in both categories. There's so much wrong here, from the animation to the direction to the storytelling, and there's not much good to make up for it. Nothing really nice I can say, no bone I can throw. The best thing Berserk 2016 has going for it is the fact that it is nice to see this part of the story be adapted. But that's some faint as hell praise. If the best thing I can say about your show is that it exists, that's a bad sign. And that doesn't mean you should watch it. Even if you're someone who doesn't like reading, you're better off just having someone read the manga to you while pointing out the pictures. You don't need to sell for this. It's a shame it ended this way. It really is. The show could have been so much more. In a period where series like JoJo and Attack on Titans were getting huge fan bases and becoming big hits, Berserk spent its time with this infamously weak adaptation. It's disappointing in ways that I don't know if I can properly express with words, no matter how many I crammed into this 45-minute section. And that's been it, really. It's been about four years now since the 2017 season ended, and there hasn't been anything since. Occasionally there will be rumors here and there, mostly false, but there hasn't been any updates on any more adaptations, whether it be a season 3 of 2016 or something else entirely. And that's probably gonna stay that way for a while, if we're being honest with ourselves. Because for a lot of reasons, Berserk simply cannot be properly adapted. So, okay. We just spent way too much time going over the three Berserk anime adaptations that currently exist, from an overall declining scale of quality. And while there are some like 97 that I absolutely adore, and some like the Golden Age trilogy that I can mildly endorse, the fact is that nothing here can qualify as a quote-quote proper or definitive adaptation in the eyes of many fans. And I'm inclined to agree, Berserk 97 is a masterpiece, but it's not a proper adaptation. I mean, at best it only represents a fourth of Berserk as a whole. So what gives? How can a series be given so many chances and just continue to not hit that mark? And can we ever expect to see one in the future? Well, hmm. So Berserk is in a weird zone as far as content goes? Let me try to visualize this as best as I can, okay? So let's say that Berserk is a triangle, and at each point of this triangle is a different defining feature of Berserk that any adaptation will have to struggle with. At the top, let's put long. Berserk the manga is long. Over 350 chapters comprising around 40 or so volumes. And while the Golden Age can theoretically be isolated into its own narrative, the rest of the story relies so heavily on the grand overarching storyline that you can't just pick and choose. 
A proper adaptation of Berserk has to be able to make a large quantity of episodes. But then you run into the next defining attribute here on this corner of the triangle. Berserk is beautiful. It contains some of the best illustrations you'll see not just in manga, but in any graphic novel format. Berserk is filled with distinct and heavily detailed characters wearing elaborate armors fighting large, unconventional monsters. It uses a lot of landscape and two-page spreads. It is an epic in all senses of the word. It is impossible to separate Berserk from the mastery of its art. And that's going to suck for you, because you have to figure out how to animate this. And yeah, you technically can, but that's going to require a lot of work. And a lot of work requires a lot of money. And this is where you get into the conflict with the top of the triangle. Because of Berserk's length, you'd have to attempt a budget for countless episodes. How do you acquire and allocate the funds needed to tell the entirety of the story, while also making it look as good as possible? It could theoretically be done, but you need a lot of money, and for the adaptation to be a big enough hit to justify that price tag. But that leads us to the final triangle in this corner. Berserk is explicit. Very explicit. It is a very gory manga with large quantities of blood, frequent nudity, and lots of instances of sexual assault. Just from a pure marketing standpoint, this is a hard hurdle to overcome, at least overseas. You wouldn't be able to simply throw Berserk on a tsunami or even an adult swim. Berserk 2016 famously had to airbrush out the nipples and genitalia on its female characters for its broadcast airing, for example. And while I wouldn't call Berserk the darkest, most explicit thing out there, I honestly think Game of Thrones got more dark and tasteless than Berserk ever did, and it managed to be a big hit. You have to overcome that stigma against animated works, even if they are explicitly aimed at adults. A lot of people who would watch and get into a show like Berserk just won't because it's not live action. This is not an invitation to make a live action Berserk. So any attempts to show Berserk on standard anime avenues require heavy censoring or scaling back of explicit content, which isn't necessarily a bad thing and can be done well. But there are some points of it that are just unavoidable. Things like Lost Children, which relies so heavily on disturbing imagery to make its point, can't just be skipped over. There's also the fact that taking out this stuff will upset a fair portion of the Berserk fans you're trying to attract with an adaptation. Streaming services can help. There's been a plethora of new unique animated shows available on online platforms. Amazon Prime did Invincible, which is incredibly, incredibly violent, more so than Berserk, I'd say, and it became a hit. Netflix recently finished off its Castlevania series, a show that's presentation and content has been openly inspired by Berserk. So there is some form of market for something like that. Though it's a question of if the people with the power to license out Berserk would ever do so for a service like Netflix. And even once you get past that roadblock, you also have to deal with, once again, finding an appropriate budget for it and a studio willing to throw out enough money for such a cult series that can probably only be consumed by a certain amount of people because of its content, which is an unfortunately true struggle in the current media landscape. So here is our triangle. This is the issue that every Berserk adaptation has and will have to deal with. You can make a Berserk adaptation that's beautiful and explicit, but it can't be too long. You can make one that's long and explicit, but it won't be beautiful. Any attempt to hit all three is going to be challenging, if not outright impossible. There's also one more roadblock to any Berserk adaptation going forward. It will be trying to adapt an incomplete work. It's hard to convey the shock Berserk fans felt. It had been mostly quiet in regards to Berserk news. The most recent chapter, 363, was released back in January of 2021, ending on a to-be-continued page. Fans were anxious to see the follow-up. Berserk in its later years would become rather well known for its long hiatuses and breaks between chapters. At a certain point, fans got used to it and would wait in anticipation for the three or four chapters we'd get per year. After 363 dropped, there wasn't much info released out there, up until the aforementioned Berserk Twitter account made a post on May 19th. 
Kintaro Miura had passed away on May 6 at the age of 54 due to an acute aortic dissection. 54. God. The world exploded in mourning. Tribute art was posted online. People were sharing their favorite Berserk pages and Berserk posts. People flooded the comments of any Berserk-related video they could find. A large memorial was held in Final Fantasy XIV. A Lion of the Dark Knight class raised their swords in remembrance. Several high-profile figures expressed condolences, from Yoko Taro to Hideki Kamiya to Naoki Yoshida, to legendary manga creators like George Murakawa and Hiroya Oku and Hiro Mashima, and many, many, many more. The loss of Miura was felt all over, especially in the Japanese industry. The main connecting force behind all of this was this great sense of unfairness. Miura had been taken from us far too soon. I'm not here to speculate on Miura's health or lifestyle or anything like that. I didn't know the man, but I can't deny the tragedy that this person, who had worked himself so hard, became such a master of his craft and created such a well-regarded work, was taken from us. Gone. Out of nowhere. At such a young age and without getting to see his magnum opus to completion. And for a lot of people, mourning Miura also meant mourning Berserk. The two were so inherently entwined that it was impossible not to. And this mourning wasn't the usual thing that happens when a tragedy like this occurs. It wasn't simply sadness over the fact that Berserk didn't get an ending. It was feeling like something this good that meant this much was ripped away so soon. It seems silly to say about a man who is 54 years old who was able to publish 40 volumes of a work, but there's this overwhelming feeling that Miura and Berserk could have gone on to do so much more. To be much more. That this was the case of an artist and his art cut off from the world far too soon. At least that's how I felt from my side of the corner. From an outsider perspective, it can be hard to understand. The way fans were talking about it, you would think that everyone had just lost a close family friend. In reality, Miura was very secretive with only a few photos of him known to exist, meaning it was impossible to even form a parasocial bond with him. But there's something about Berserk that resonated with people so much. Something about it that made the absence of it and its creator feel like such a personal loss. I definitely had to take a few days to process it. Berserk has always been very dear to me for most of my life now. It meant something special, something I hadn't really gotten out of any other work. I, I cried, I'm not ashamed to admit it. I felt hurt, and I needed to find some way to deal with it, some way to make sense of this shitty, horrible thing. So I did what I usually did when I was sad. I went back to watching Berserk. I had already said I was going to make this video. I had started working on it in late April, and had begun watching stuff and had even gotten a bit of the script written. And then when May 15th came, I made the decision to throw it all away and start over. I spent two weeks reading all 40 volumes of the manga, watching the 97 series, the three Golden Age movies, and the 2016 anime. I went into it full of sadness, anger, confusion. I went into it with the knowledge that this was it, that as of this moment, this is all that Berserk is and maybe will be. And as I read and watched on, it became clear to me that what this project was had changed. I need to be honest with you. I decided to make this video back in April because I was going through a depressive episode. It wasn't anything serious, no need to worry, I, I just felt bad. It happens. I needed to find some way to pick myself up. And as such, the idea came to my mind to talk about Berserk because it would give me an excuse to go through a series that I used to cure my depression spells anyway. Like I said, I watch the 97 series at least once per year, and I do that for a very good reason. And if I could do that while also introducing people to a work that I really love, well, I'd love to do it. But Miura's passing changed things. This was no longer just a simple recommendation video, but a memorial, something that needed to not just tell people about Berserk and why it's good, but something that needed to capture the spirit and essence of Berserk and the man who made it. 
and most of all explain why it means so much to me and so many others and why people are so passionate about the franchise, both its good and bad parts. There's something in Berserk that I really want to talk about, but I will have to give a warning for it. Not just because of spoilers, but because it's incredibly dark and I don't want to spring this on anyone unprompted. So this is a content warning. I'm going to be doing some, in my opinion, relatively minor spoilers for the Golden Age, and I'm going to be talking about child abuse and sexual assault. If you don't want to hear about this, skip to this timecode on the screen. Okay. So in all the adaptations so far, there is one specific plot point that has never been fully portrayed on screen. Alluded to, yes, to the point where it can probably be inferred, but never truly shown. Guts was raped as a child. His father figure Gambino, motivated solely by spite, sold Guts for the night to another man in the camp, Donovan, who proceeded to pin Guts down and rape him. We see it. It's hard to look at. Guts would later go on to kill Donovan on the battlefield, and then later, when Gambino starts to attack Guts in a drunken fury, Guts goes on to kill him too and runs away. This is why Guts doesn't like being touched. This is why Guts is so angry at the start of the series. This is why Guts refuses to let himself get close to anyone else, why he's so reluctant to join up with the Band of the Hawk. So let's cut years later, towards the end of the Golden Age arc. Casca and Guts have just had their first kiss on the top of the waterfall. So much romantic tension and character development has led to this moment. The two take their clothes off and start to have sex and everything is nice and romantic and tender and then… Guts has a flashback to his childhood. To what happened. And he panics. And when he snaps back to reality, he realizes he has his hands wrapped around Casca's neck and he's pushing her against the tree. And he backs away in horror. He looks at his hands. He starts talking in a hysterical panic. He tells Casca about what happened, about how he was assaulted as a child, and about how he killed Gambino, and he calls Gambino his father for the first time. And he starts crying, and then he looks over at Casca and apologizes to her for ruining what was supposed to be her first time, and says if she wants him to leave, he will. And then as he walks off, he talks about how he's still so affected about killing his father, even though it doesn't make sense as he's killed so many people on the battlefield, and then Casca embraces him. And Guts tries to tell her off, say that she doesn't need to continue with this because it would just be the two of them licking each other's wounds. But Casca says she doesn't mind, that she's glad that Guts felt comfortable enough to share all that with her and that the two of them know each other's weaknesses and losses, Casca having already told Guts about the time that she was sexually assaulted and had to be saved by Griffith. She kisses him, and the two continue on. It is the most beautiful moment I've seen in any work of fiction. I don't think I've seen anything else really do this. I don't know if I've seen anything else even attempt this. A lot has been said about the dark content in Berserk, and I wouldn't blame anyone for being put off by me even describing any of this. Sexual assault, when done to a child no less, is one of the most brutal things you can depict in a story, and in most media I would say it's best to avoid the subject altogether, but Berserk isn't most media. Weaker stories would take that element and just leave it there. It would be used to establish how fucked up the world is, how cruel humanity can be, hammer home some cynical pessimistic point about morality and society and whatever. But Berserk doesn't do that. It takes this plot point and uses it to show how something like this actually affects the characters. This isn't an isolated incident. This is something that Guts is going to struggle with for the rest of his life. Something that affects how he behaves and interacts with the world around him. And in this moment, Miura is taking this incredibly dark and brutal thing and turning it into something beautiful. We see this big, strong protagonist cry. We see him shed tears, we see him talk openly about being abused, we see how he's traumatized and how it's something he's still struggling with, even now, years later, when he's older and stronger. And more importantly, he's showing us that that's okay. 
What we see in the scene is two sexual assault survivors finally allowing themselves intimacy, not just in the physical sense, but emotionally. And we get an important lesson, that you can have your trauma and struggle with it and still be deserving and capable of love and compassion. This is why Berserk is so good. This is why Berserk is top of its class when it comes to dark fantasy. It understands the balance that every moment of horror must come with a moment of beauty. There's this concept of something called comfort media, in which you engage with a certain work because it brings you positive and uplifting, comfortable feelings in moments when you might need them. And comfort media can come in all shapes and sizes, though the general consensus seems to prioritize works that are lighthearted with minimal conflict. So I've definitely gotten an odd look or two when I've described Berserk as my comfort media. After all, how can a melancholy work that features so much death and gore and abuse feel comforting? And I think the answer is, well, because it focuses on those things. There's something about the way Berserk handles its subject matter that resonates with me. It utilizes all these horrifying, depressing elements, yes, but in a way to explore them and what comes afterwards. The world of Berserk is harsh and cruel. Bad things happen, often for reasons outside of your control or understanding. People die, people leave, you end up alone, you end up abused. And this replicates what stuff like trauma and mental illness can feel like. You didn't choose to have these things. You didn't choose to have to deal with these things. They were placed upon you. And the question then becomes what to do about it because you have to deal with it every single day of your life. And that's where the comfort part of Berserk comes in. Because at the end of the day, what the story is trying to express is that terrible things might have happened to you. You might have lost your dream. You might be struggling to just go on. But you can go on. Even if it hurts, even if you have to spend every day of your life fighting, there is something worth living for, and something worth fighting for, and something worth loving. Powering against the darkness around you is an important theme of Berserk. Guts is often called a struggler by people in the universe because of how much shit the world seems to throw at him. He is literally fated to die, and yet he's still standing. But it's true of all the characters in a way. Everyone in Berserk is struggling with something, mentally or physically or emotionally. I know I jokingly downplayed Farnese's arc earlier, saying that it was about her learning that she's useless, but in all honesty, it's a perfect example of what Berserk does so well. Farnese's arc is incredible. It's about this woman who has spent her entire life being pressured to conform to a certain image by her religious and high-status family, who finds herself in a powerful position and realizes that she doesn't know what to do. She's a failure at everything she's been forced into, and when she's no longer able to just keep following others' directions, realizes that she doesn't have an understanding of who she is as a person or her passions. Additionally, she has to deal with the mental effects of seeing and participating in acts of violence and hatred against others, taking the lives of those she's been taught to view as lesser solely because they don't conform to her religious standards. She has to begin this journey of discovering herself, finding out who she wants to be, what she's good at, what her place in the world is around her, and finally become her own person. It's an amazing path for her to go down, and by the end, the character of Farnese is almost unrecognizable compared to how she started. When it comes down to it, that has always been my takeaway from Berserk. It's finding a way to grow a flower even in the darkness of an eclipse. Finding out how to spread life and joy and hang on to what's important to you and how to move on from the pain you feel even if you constantly feel it. And I think that's what I want to do here. Mira's death is a tragedy. He had so much more he could give to the world, so much more art and life he could have shared. It's a loss that can't be replicated or can't be replaced regardless of what happens to Berserk from this point forward and I don't know if I'll be able to fully get over it anytime soon. But what I can do is use this as a reminder to keep going, to tell other people about this series, about what makes it so special and why so many hold it so dear. The original version of the script I wrote was a lot meaner, a lot snarkier. 
I spent more time making cheap pot shots at 2016, making fun of the flaws of the adaptations, and ended on a rather cynical note regarding Berserk's future. But after all this, I don't want that. I don't want to end this indulging in my worst impulses, feeding into nothing but cynicism and irritation. This series is something I love, it's something that I've grown up with, it's something that has shaped the way that I process my emotions and my feelings. And I want to share this work with as many people as possible to let them get the chance to experience it too. It's what Miura deserves. So if anything I said here interested you, if you've never engaged with Berserk in any format, or if you're a fan that fell out of it years ago, then I strongly recommend picking it up. Read the manga, or watch the 97 anime, or the movies, or even the 2016 series. You owe it to yourself to experience perhaps the most influential dark fantasy story ever told, no matter what format you choose. We may never get a proper ending to Berserk. We may never get a proper adaptation of Berserk. Who knows what happens from this point forward, but so long as there are people there to engage with it, so long as Berserk is remembered and experienced, then Berserk will never truly die. I want to thank all of my patrons who were all so gracious and understanding with this video coming out way later than I said it would. In particular, I'd like to thank, and hopefully pronounce correctly, Alpha Chad Beck, Alice in the Middle, Beacon Bug, Clara M, Daisy Hind, Dan Connell, Dana, Dana Carrier, David Portnov, David Rose, Dramatic Soprano, Dree, Elliot Berry, Emma K, Given Curvelow, J. Marquez Durst, Katrina Leonidakis, Kyle Edmund, Kyle Slaby, Lily Sugarman, Madry Brad, Mason B, Michelle, Michael Freytag, Mr. Bones, Mr. Schmiff, Nathan Y, Nick Skahe, Paige, Ramona Montagani, Richard Pryor, Sam Wade, Samuel Snap, Sarah Zed, Scarebank, Sebastian Canino, Simon Welsh, Skylar Conlin, Sound Effects Madison, Spencer, Independent Shadow, There is Always Dust and Dark Water Building the World, The Recognition Scheme, Tim Delagotti, Tobias Luchernay, Trevor Steers, and York. Th thank you all so much. Uh, I really appreciate it. And goddamn, that was a lot of names. What the fuck happened between the Family Dollar vid and now? You know, my dad watches my videos, and I never told him I got a Berserk tattoo, so, uh, hey dad. Sorry this is how you found out. <laughs>